Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. An opportunity for confession, though you don't have to raise your hand. Perhaps a nod, a smile, a look of agreement would help. How many of you have ever tried to use the wrong tool for the job you were trying to get done? Yeah, for, we could do that for a couple of reasons. One, maybe we don't know the tool we should use, and so we just use whatever's at hand. Maybe we don't even have the right tool. We're too lazy to go back and get the right tool or too cheap to buy the right tool. So we use the wrong one. Almost 15 years ago, I tried my first garden. And I asked one of the men at church at the time, a man who did a lot of gardening, what, what do I do? Now here was the word that I heard from him. Well, first, you need to go turn the ground. Now, looking back on that, Eastern North Carolina folks, he may have said till, alright? He may have said till the ground, okay? But I heard the word turn. So, you know what I did? I got out there with a shovel and turned a garden, alright? Now that was 15 years ago, I'm pretty sure I'm still in pain to this day. from trying, And it was just a little square, alright, just like a little baby garden, okay, because that's the best I can do, baby gardens, alright, so that, that's what it was, but I turned that whole thing with a shovel. Yeah, if you want to do the job, it helps to use the right tool. Of course, we do that in a lot of other ways, don't we? That's not the only example where we might use the wrong tool to try and accomplish a job. I have on more than one occasion tried to use a rubber mallet to nail a, ha- a nail, alright, not used a hammer. That didn't work. I've tried it more than once. I don't know why. The first time it didn't work. The fifth time it didn't work. Yeah, I've tried it that many times. I don't know why. Because, actually I do. I'm too lazy to go back and get the real hammer, okay? But I've got a mallet. Let's use the mallet, okay? You know I'm, I'm partial to cooking. It's something I enjoy doing. I've used the wrong tool. Anybody ever put Whatever you're cooking in the wrong sized pan, put it in the oven and set off the smoke detectors. All right, anybody? Anybody else done that? I've done that, okay? Yes, I've done that. The wrong tool for the job. But it's not even just tools. Think about even a, a sports analogy. 
I mean, if in golf you've got a particular shot, there's a particular club you need to use, and there's a particular way you need to hit the ball. There's a right shot, right club for the situation. How about football? Quarterback trying to throw a pass. There's a right kind of pass for the play that is being performed. How about baseball? There's a right kind of pitch for the right kind of situation to be thrown to the right location. In other words, just about every area of life, this I think applies. In order to accomplish the task, you need the right tool. I think in a way this helps sum up what Paul's been doing in Romans. What he's doing at the end of Romans 7 and as he transitions into Romans 8. This transition we started to look at a couple of weeks ago. uh, This grand and glorious chapter in the book of Romans where Paul is not only responding to this deep and difficult and disturbing dilemma at the end of chapter 7 that I've got this law in my mind. I know the right thing, but don't do it. So I have this law of the flesh. It holds me captive. It wars against me. Paul's got then this this great response. In many ways, a summation. The very first verse of this chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's, Paul's words here are in essence summing up an argument he's made all along. Put it in the terms I just mentioned, in order for me to be saved, in order for me to know forgiveness of my sin, in order for me to know joy and peace, in order for me to have hope, in order to know forgiveness now and forever, in order to know the assurance of my salvation, I need the right tool for the job. And not to make light of it, but simply put, Paul's entire argument to this point has been to say that the Gospel, and only the Gospel, can accomplish this outcome. And yet, people all around use the wrong tool, don't they? I mean, there's people all over this world. In fact, I would say the vast majority of people are using fundamentally the same kind of tool. Something we'll adjust, that we'll deal with a bit more here in just a minute. And it is this, I'm going to use my good works in order to achieve this end goal. If, If I can just have more good works than I have bad works, if I can just be a little better than I am bad, and I can do this throughout my life and get to the end of my life, if, if I can just, you know, be a pretty fine fella, then I know, I know that when I get before God in heaven, He'll say, come on in. You've been better than you've been bad. Some people live their life this way. In fact, I would, I would argue a majority of people in this world assume this is exactly the tool I need in order to be made right with God. Back in Paul's day, And throughout the book of Romans, it deals with this extensively. There were folks who kind of had a similar idea, except they were using the law. And they were saying, I just need to keep the law. And what they meant by keeping the law is, one, liking the law, and two, trying to keep the big points of it. In other words, by being a law keeper, by being a covenant Jew, I could be made right with God. Paul's made the the argument, no, this, this is the wrong tool for the job. And that, in fact, God never designed the law to save me. It's never been God's intent. There's never part of the plan. God never expected people to be made right with Him by keeping the law. The law is important, good, righteous, just, but that is not its function. So the entirety of this book has been a defense, argument for, 
glorifying of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's not just being saved. It's also being sanctified. In other words, living the Christian life is the same thing. I can't be a Christian by keeping the law, and I can't stay a Christian by keeping the law. It's, it's not like I, I now as a believer keep the law in order to earn my keep. It's not like I, I try and do good works now in order to show God He made a really good choice and to kind of pay Him back for what He's done for me. This work of sanctification is now my responsibility. Yeah, God did all the grace stuff by saving me, but now, man, now's the hard work. I've got to get to it in order to be saved. Romans comes along and says, nope, that's not right either. The law doesn't save me. The law doesn't sanctify me. This is the wrong tool for the job. Instead, Romans 8 now brings all of this to a head and in essence gives us not only the right tool, but in the right context to say, not only is it the gospel that saves and the gospel that sanctifies, but all of this is the appropriate view because it is the Spirit of God that is the means by which not only God saves me, meaning the the energizing power that brings life to me, but it's also the Holy Spirit who continues to enable me to live a life of faith and obedience. And so Romans 8 does a lot of things for us. Romans 8 summarizes all the great themes of the book of Romans to this point. It brings them all to their natural conclusion So we kind of introduced this chapter a couple of weeks ago, and we only got to the first verse. And our focus this morning, now verses 1-11, through where, where Paul focuses attention here on the fact that because we now have the Spirit of God, we have been freed from the condemnation of the law. Means by which we are set free to live a life of faith and obedience trust, love, devotion, all of these qualities that we know are important for Christian living, this is possible because God by His Spirit set us free from condemnation. And we've been looking at really what I think are three facets of being set free. Last week, two weeks ago, we only got to the first one, uh, and we're going to keep in it just a little bit longer. So if we go on to the next slide. So number one, if you want to take notes, uh, there, there are blanks now in your outline. You can fill these in. So the first facet that I think Paul describes for us about life in the Spirit and what we've been, how we've been set free, he tells us what we've been set free from. Now again, we've already dealt with that first verse. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And just listen, church, if you just haven't, if you haven't marinated in this verse, I mean, you're welcome to do that now for the rest of the time. Alright? And not think about food that's been marinated. Alright? In other words, if this is what you need to think about, this is profound. There's now, right at this moment, there is now, is now, present tense, at the moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that means no matter what you may think of what you've done in your past, either your past before a believer, or your past as a believer, understand that in Christ, you no longer stand condemned for any of it. For any of it. God has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. Now I'll warn you here though, just because God has forgiven you, doesn't mean you've forgotten it, right? Wouldn't it be great if those two things went together? 
That every time I prayed and asked God for forgiveness, that part of the work of the Holy Spirit was to zap that synapse or whatever in my brain that remembers that one thing or that two thing or those thousand things. Wouldn't that be great if that's how it worked? It doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Now the truth is, uh, though I stand forgiven, it, my sin is not forgotten by me. It is not forgotten by me. I may all be all too aware of it. And in fact, the more faithful I become, the closer I get to Christ, that might even make my past sin more acutely problematic for me. Listen church, I think you should turn that into an expression of grace and thankfulness to God. That every time you remember that thing, those things, you should follow that with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then that perhaps the remembrance of those things in the past could be the very thing that not only encourages your humility, in other words, it's a reminder to all of us that we still desperately need the Gospel. We really needed to get saved. But it also should continue to encourage our gratitude toward God for what He's done for us. Now, but notice how that keeps going. By the way, the next part of verse 1, we dealt with that two weeks ago, why I don't think that phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, probably uh, isn't in the original manuscript. If that bothers you and you're new here this morning, after the service, I'll be down front. I'll be glad to explain why that shouldn't bother you. Alright? Okay? But that, I, I don't think it is there. Now, here's what Paul's going to do. Now, as Paul makes his argument, he's going to use the word for. See that at the beginning of verse 2? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ. He's going to use that word for throughout the text as a way to continue to build upon the primary principle he's established in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that naturally leads to the question, why? Why is that the case? Why is there now no condemnation? Especially given what he said at the end of chapter 7, this troubling war that's going on in me. Why? Verse 2. For, because... For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Here's what God has done. And this, really, this verse is such a critical verse to, to understanding all that is involved in the work of the Gospel. I'm no longer condemned because there is now a law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. So, in Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. It should be a capital S in your translations. Alright? It should be a capital S. This is, this is identifying not the law of my spirit, meaning little s, right? My inner man. This is capital S. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's now no condemnation because God by His Spirit has given me life in Christ. This in turn has overturned in my life the law of what? Notice the symmetry here. Sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has overturned the law of sin and death. Now really this is quite profound. Because if there's a law that stands against me, How can I get out from under it? If there's a law, that law is against me, alright? In other words, I'm I'm guilty of it. I'm under it. I deserve whatever the 
consequence is for violating that law. If there is a law against me, how do I get out from under that law? Well, there'd be two options, right? One, I could face the full consequences of that law. I, I, I could bear in me all the consequences of that law. Now, I'll warn you, you don't want to do that one. Don't choose A, okay? Because that means I will then bear the consequences for my sin for all eternity. I don't know what you think about that, but that sounds really bad, alright? That's a theological phrase. That sounds really bad. It's really, really bad, okay? So I don't want that one, but that is an option. I could come out from under the law by the law fully and completely being brought to bear on my life. Or, a new law could be made. A law that overcomes the previous law. And that the only way I can get out from underneath that law is for there to be another law, a better law, a bigger law. A law that comes along and enables me to be brought out from under that. So, now Paul's going to tell us how that happens here in just a minute. But the first thing Paul does is he explains... So there's now no condemnation because the law that was against me has been dealt with by another law. By another law. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ. And just to make this simple, now Paul is really kind of mixing the language here of law. He's not talking about the law of Moses at this point, but he's using that imagery to talk about that which is binding, that which is essential, that which rules and has authority. So now, that law of death and sin, sin and death, has now been overcome in my life through the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. All that is kind of shorthand for the Gospel. This again is important, because now Paul is going to use the word Spirit a bunch. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, you see the Holy Spirit mentioned once, maybe twice, in the first seven chapters. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit's referenced almost 20 times. Just under 20 times, there's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this is where now, so Paul kicks it off here by saying, so this is fundamentally how you deal with this war that's going on. You need the law of the Spirit of life in order to fulfill the other law that otherwise would bring you under condemnation. And again, I love how the grammar here is very specific. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free. Maybe even the better translation, has set me free. Has released me. Now I bring that up because what was the grammar of verse 1? I know. Come on, preacher. Sunday morning, stop doing grammar. Now you're going to have to find some other place. Alright, because that's what I'm going to do. Alright, so the grammar of verse 1 is there is now no condemnation. Alright, class. That's what? Tense. Present tense. Okay, alright. You can have a dessert when you leave, okay? Alright, yes, present tense. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death is past tense. What's the big deal, preacher? Because what God did in the past, in fact, what God did for you before you were even born, what God did for you 10, 2,000 years ago, long before there was even a knowledge that you'd be coming along, what God did for you then has set you free so that now there is no condemnation. What has been done has ongoing, 
recurring benefits as a result of the work of Christ on your behalf. Keeping in mind that Christ died for all of my sins before I had committed one of them because Christ died before I was born. Right? And though some of you may have a few more gray hairs than me, you also were not alive at the time of Christ. Okay? Alright? So this counts for all of us. This, this is the profound reality of the work of the Gospel. I'm no longer condemned. Because God's made another law. He's made a law that enables the other law to be overcome. Now, I think it's important at this point, and this might be some helpful information to give to you as you're discussing this issue. Uh, if, if you get an opportunity to say, share the gospel with somebody, and you deal with someone who tells you, well, I'm, I'm okay. There's no... There's no sin and death awaiting me in the future because I do good works. My good works will, will get me there. I, I, I'm a pretty good guy. All right? I, I help people. I, 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 do, I do all kinds of good things for folks. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a host of issues here. One of them being, how do you know that what you define as a good work is the same thing God defines as a good work? Right? That's a good question to ask somebody. How do you know your good work will be a good enough of a good work in order to match what God says is a good work. We've got an answer for that. The law. The law says. And in fact, the summation of the law given in the Old Testament, repeated in 1 Peter, is that if you want to have good works that will equal what God expects of good works, then it's simple. Be holy as God is holy. Anyone? Anyone match that description? I mean to be as equally holy as God Himself. Alright, so that's, that's pretty tough, right? In other words, so the person who says, no, my, my good works are good enough, well, I don't get to decide what those good works are, and I don't get to decide how many good works would overcome for a bad work. Why? Not because it's the issue of good works and bad works. There's a law that stands over me. And I violated that law. Have I violated every single one of the laws on, the, on God's books? Well, well, I mean, directly, explicitly, I, I don't think so. Again, I mean, one of the laws is you need to give restitution to your neighbor if his ox steps in a hole you dug. I've never done that. Alright, so, in other words, there's part, no, there's parts of the law, but do I have to violate all of the laws to be a lawbreaker? How many laws do you have to violate to break the law? One. So when you get that person on the hook, alright? When you get them on the hook and they're saying, no, my good works, my good works are good enough. You say, no, the problem is not your works, good or bad works. The problem is you violated God's law. And so let's think about it this way. Let's say I'm arrested and about to be convicted of robbing a bank Right? This is one of my favorite ways to illustrate this. Robbing a bank. And I go before the judge. So, it's, this is it. All right? I'm, I'm about to be declared guilty. And, and I have an opportunity to speak in my own defense. Now, full disclosure, I, I haven't actually literally robbed a bank. All right? But for the sake of this illustration, let's say I did. And I robbed that bank. Robbed it good. Okay? Got away with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I say, Judge, listen, 
I mean, I robbed a bank. But I know a pastor at another Baptist church who robbed five banks. I only robbed one. And just so you know, I gave half the money to charities. Uh, By the way, I think you should know this about me. I visit nursing homes every weekend and help old people that don't have families. I do it every weekend. Every weekend. And when the snow comes, Judge, I am telling you, I'm the first guy out there shoveling that snow, getting rid of that ice. Oh, and when hurricane season's here, man, I get my my chainsaw is ready to go. I'm the first one in my neighbor's yard. I'm cutting down trees. I'm hacking up debris. Man, that is that is the thing. I do that. I do that regularly. And and you, you should also know that when I get a chance, I go to the homeless shelter. I read books to homeless children. And in other words, yeah, I did. I robbed a bank, but I've got these other things that are so clearly good, righteous things to do, surely I'm not guilty. Is a judge going to say, Preacher, that's a compelling case. My goodness, you are right. Free to go. Because you did more good things than you did bad things. See, what's the problem with the argument? The issue is not good works versus bad works. The problem is I have broken God's law. I am a law breaker. Because I'm a law breaker, I am subject now to the law of sin and death. And I can stand before God and I can pontificate all I want about all the good, great things that I have done. It does not negate the fact that I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal. And God's made it explicit in His law to violate His law, to do anything that's not as holy as God is holy, is to invite the consequence of death. So I need life. And I need the, I need the lawgiver now to do something about that, because I've broken the law, there's no doubt about it. All right? It's not like I've been wrongly accused, and so I need another trial to get me out. Right? I mean, that's not the problem here. I've been rightly accused and condemned. I do need another law, though, to come. And so the Bible says... One of the ways in which I am set free is I am set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit. Alright, let's go on to number two. Then I think the text tells me what I'm set free by. Because now you've got to ask, well, huh. Alright, set free from the law of sin and death by Spirit. Alright, great. Preacher. So, does that mean God can just negate one law and put in another one? In other words, is, is what God has not, has God just simply said, you know what? That huh. man, that first law thing in the Old Testament, wow, that was a big flop. All right, so let's mark that one off the books. We'll just, we'll just get rid of that and let's do something else. Let's do this law of the spirit of life. In other words, can the law only the lawgiver can deal with me as a lawbreaker, but does he deal with me by simply getting rid of the law that was against me? No. He doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't just erase it. That law still stands. Though we've got laws in the United States that get added and erased all the time. Alright? That's not how God operates. When God makes a law, law is absolute. Right? Law is absolute. Only only God now can do something. So what does He do? Notice verse 3. We have another four statement. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, understand this is not a problem with the law, this is Paul's way of saying it's a problem with my flesh, 
the, the law was good, righteous, and just. But the reason why the law is the wrong tool for the job is because I, I am weak in the flesh. So the tool was not designed to save me. I mean the law. The law was not a tool that was designed in order to save me. So the law couldn't do it because of the weakness of my flesh. So what did God do? God did by sending His own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I know this is stuff we've heard before. In fact, some of it may even be reminiscent of like a John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And you've got to love this language. So how can the lawgiver deal with the one who is the lawbreaker? Well, the law that I've broken still needs to be satisfied. If it's not, then God's not just. God has no justice. And if God's not just, God's not God. God's justice must be satisfied. The law has been broken. So the price for breaking the law must be paid. But I can't pay it. You can't pay it. Your good works can't pay it. And so it says what the law could not do, God did. God did by doing something that was an act of His grace. Notice that phrase. God did this by sending His Son. Understand this. This is why I love the phrase sovereign grace. Why grace is sovereign. Because grace is given based on God and God Himself and for His glory alone. God's grace is never bestowed because the person receiving the grace did something to earn the grace. Grace begins with God sending. It is the sending of God's grace. So God begins by engaging in the work, sending His Son... So we needed God to come deal with our law problem, right? We need the lawgiver to deal with us as the lawbreaker. But then there's a particular manner here. What the law cannot do is weak through the flesh. God did by doing what? Sending His Son in the likeness of flesh. In the likeness of flesh. Don't be misled by that. That doesn't mean that Jesus was anything less than human. It is a way of saying Jesus was everything that is true of a human except He was without sin. And before somebody hears that and thinks, well, but pastor, isn't it true that being a human is being sinful? Not originally. You and I are not original humans, right? We're broken. In other words, we're wrong. Jesus really came as humanity was intended to be. In perfection. Sin-free, right? So, so in other words, he was fully human. And what that means is he experienced all the things you and I experienced. We just read it. He was tempted in all ways as we are. This, this was the nature of him coming in the flesh. So we needed divinity to come in the flesh to do what? To be for us, notice that phrase, on account of sin. New American Standard, I think, does this better justice when, says, when it says, as an offering for sin. In other words, that little phrase there is really kind of like a saying. It's like an expression. When it says, He came on account of sin, some of you may have a translation that just says, for sin. That is a way of saying, Jesus Christ came in the likeness of human flesh in order to be an offering on its behalf. In other words, this is a way of saying, Jesus came to be a sin offering. How, how does God the lawgiver deal with me as a lawbreaker? How does God stay true to the law that I've broken while at the same time giving me life in the Spirit? 
He sends a substitute. He sent one who would bear in His body on the cross all of God's wrath against all of the sins that would be forgiven for the sake of His sons and daughters. I mean, this is, this is profound. This is what He did. God poured out His wrath on Christ. He fulfilled the law. The law was broken. The law was broken in the flesh. And God allowed for this to happen. Not for the law to just be ignored. Not for it to merely be erased. Instead, God allowed for a substitute. So that now there is a fulfillment of the law, while at the same time the ability to give me grace. And this all happens in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Christ, we have one who took death for us who bore in His body God's wrath against sin. Sin He had not committed. And then then notice this next part, getting into into verse 3 and then into verse 4. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. By the way, that last phrase doesn't mean that we're saved when we when we do right and we're obedient, to walk in the flesh is to, is to be in the flesh. That is to be an unbeliever. To walk in the Spirit is to be in the Spirit. That is to be a believer. And so what he's saying here, it's just, it is quite profound. Yes, God has set me free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life, but how has He done that? Because He allowed one to come, His Son, in, in the likeness of flesh, yet fully divine, to bear the wrath that we should have borne in our bodies in our soul, in our spirit for all eternity, Jesus took that on Himself so that those who believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. To conflate here two different ideas, right? To to bring them together in two verses that you recognize. This is what God has done for me in the Gospel. God has fulfilled what I could not fulfill in and of myself. And so now, this this is what's so great about this phrase. Now because of all of this, sin has been condemned in the flesh, and now the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me. So so think about this. It's the Easter season, right? What do we celebrate the Easter season? Death. Resurrection, right? The death of Christ. The cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. What is the problem? That without Christ, I am under the law of sin and death. That in Christ, I am now able to fulfill the law. This is why these two features are so important. Because I've broken the law, because I'm in sin, then I deserve death. So what does Jesus need to do? He not only needs to die, but He also needs to what? Come back from the dead. Because I have the law of sin and death over me. What is the cross? The sacrifice for sin. What is the resurrection? The victory over death. The reason why I fulfill the law of sin and death, in other words, I come out from under it, is because now I've come into Jesus Christ. And all of this is done in me by the work of the Spirit, convicting me of my sin, convincing me of the Gospel, and now making me a child of God in Christ Jesus. So that's why verse 1 is true. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I now have the law of the Spirit of life operating in me, rather than the law of sin and death. I've been set free from that, and I've been set free by 
God's grace in Christ Jesus. That this, this is a profound work of God. And let's, let's make something explicit here. By the way, this, this will be the last point. All right? We'll cut it off here. We'll get to the rest of some of it next week. All right? This, by the way, is why we have to be adamant and clear and unwavering in the fact that salvation is available in Christ and Christ alone. Alone. Listen, the problem with all the other religions in the world is not, is not again, it's, it's not the good works, bad works thing. The reason why other religions don't work is because they don't satisfy the law of God. They don't satisfy it. So that means you can be as sincere a Hindu as you want, sincere Buddhist as you want, sincere as Mormon as you want. It doesn't matter. None of those systems satisfy God's law. Everybody who lives as a faithful Muslim, a faithful Buddhist, a faithful Hindu, it doesn't matter how sincere, it doesn't matter how genuine, they are not, a, it's not a problem of good works, bad works, sincerity, or faith. The problem is they have broken the law and those who break the law pay the penalty of the law unless there's someone else who will pay it for me. And if I don't know that someone else, then I pay that penalty all the rest of eternity. Only can, only can Christ bring me out from under that penalty. And so know this church, it doesn't matter how politically incorrect this is, the truth is, Christ and Christ alone is the one who saves. I don't care how sincere anybody else is. I don't care how genuine anybody else is. Everyone else is a lawbreaker. The only people who are law fulfillers are those who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's it. Any other means, any other means, and any other kind of confession is wrong. We believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He and He alone is the one who saves. And I cannot tell you how, how essential that is. For everything that we believe in the gospel. This is what Romans teaches, by the way. There's no other way around it. There's no other way around Romans 8. But to say that only Christ can do this. Because if this is my problem, if I'm under the law of sin and death, then I need someone, I need the lawgiver to deal with me as a lawbreaker. Now next week we'll get into the third part. And, and we'll deal with the distinction that Paul's going to make here about life in the flesh versus life in the Spirit. While this is primarily a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever, we'll also see as believers how this helps us deal with the struggle at the end of chapter 7. All right? That it is the gift of the Spirit of God that helps me deal uh, with this war within my members that he described at the end of chapter 7. But as we bring this time to a close, I mean, I'd make an appeal, obviously, first and foremost, anybody here who maybe thinks they've been trusting in their own good works for salvation, I mean, if that's what you've been doing, I mean, you can go on and do that. And you can then just decide the Bible's wrong and that I can't stop you from that. However, know that that is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. That if you are trusting in your own works, you will die in those works. And you will be judged for your inability to keep the law. If you want to try and live by the law, you will then die by that law. That doesn't have to be true. You can trust in Christ as your Savior. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess that there's no power in you that can earn God's grace. Trust that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Ask for God to save you in Christ, that God by His Spirit would give you life. 
And you can be saved today. I'll be down front. If you'd like to know more about that gospel, if you're worried about your own salvation and whether or not that's indeed what you've done, I'll be right down here. I'd love a chance to talk to you about it. Maybe even for those, though, who are believers. I, I would just encourage you with this, though much of what we've heard is, a, is another explanation of the gospel. This is just something I really believe, and if you're a guest here today, you need to know this. Uh, we never get over needing to hear the gospel preached. I never get over needing to hear the gospel preached to me. Because I find ways every day that I still need the gospel of God's grace. Ways every day. <laughs> every day. So the truth is, even as believers, we still need to hear about this precious grace of God in Christ. Perhaps there would be some here who would say that in your own walk with Christ, it's been, it's been something less than faithful. Maybe you've been trying to live it in your own power. Maybe you've been trying to use the wrong tool for the job. God, by His grace and in the Spirit, you can live faithfully. And maybe that's the commitment that can be made here today as you respond to His Word. Let's stand together. And I'll pray. And after I pray, we'll then sing. This time will be open to you as the Spirit leads. Father God, we do thank You for gathering us and We thank You for this Word. We thank You for the hope of the Gospel of Christ. We thank You that You as the lawgiver have dealt with us, the lawbreaker, by sending us Your one and only Son, perfectly God, perfectly man, to do what we could not do, and that is bear the penalty for sin while at the same time fulfilling all of the righteous requirements of the law. We thank You, God, that now in Him we stand righteous. Also, those who have fulfilled the law. We pray, God, that now we would surrender our lives to You. That we would recognize we are now Yours and that You, by Your Spirit, use us for Your own ends and purposes. And so, God, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would bring this Word to bear on our lives, that we might continue to bear fruit that is in keeping with the great work of the Gospel that has been done in us. And that You'd be glorified through it all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.